Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Jen Silverman is a New York-based writer and playwright. She is the author of the story collection, The Island Dwellers, which was long listed for a Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for debut fiction. Her plays have been produced across the United States and internationally, and she also writes for television and film. She is a two-time McDowell Colony Fellow, a member of the New Dramatists, and the recipient of a New York Foundation for the Arts grant, a Lower Manhattan Cultural Council Fellowship, the Yale Drama Series Award, and a Playwrights of New York Fellowship. She'll be in conversation tonight with Tori Peters, who is the author of the novellas Infect Your Friends and Loved Ones and The Massacre, which are available for free on her website. She holds an MFA from the University of Iowa and an MA in comparative literature from Dartmouth. She grew up in Chicago and now lives in Brooklyn. Detransition Baby is her first novel. Please join me in welcoming them to the stage. Hi, everyone. Hi. Um, I'm so happy to be able to talk to Jen tonight. Jen and I have actually the same editor, Caitlin McKenna, and I have been hearing for a year about this book and how good it is. And I've just been like, and it's kind of like waiting, waiting for the chance to both read it and talk. Um, so when I got asked to do this, uh, I was I was thrilled. Um, so and and now this is the first time I'm actually getting to see. You. We've talked on the phone, but this is my first time to actually get to see you. So I'm just gonna kind of like give you a hug oh. in the camera, say um, congratulations on a, an, just a beautiful book, and on this launch and having all these people come out. Um, and I was thinking before you and I sort of jump into it, maybe there's uh, some time for a, a little bit of a reading. So people who haven't yet read it, and I'm sure everybody will, but um, get a chance to sort of hear the the hear the voice that you're working with. Thank you. Yeah, I will, I'll read a really brief section. But before I do that, I will just say, Tori, I am so grateful that you are doing this tonight. and. I've been, as you know, I read Detransition Baby. It's also an amazing book. Um, and when my editor, our editor, first mentioned you, which was a year ago, your work sounded so cool. I Googled you immediately, and there was a really amazing photo of you with a motorcycle. And I was like, oh, this is this person's going to be my friend. So yeah. <laughs> it's coming true. That's the one, that's I leave that photo up so people like you know people just immediately. I, I let the motorcycle do a lot of work for me actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah. 
All right, so I'm going to read a short selection from um, the first chapter of We Play Ourselves. Uh, and We Play Ourselves is a, is a novel about a playwright, Cass, who um, is in the aftermath of a wildly humiliating scandal. She flees New York for LA in an attempt to um, rebuild her life, uh, and everything spirals from there. So this is from the first chapter. <clears throat> I went to a therapist for the first and only time when everything was falling apart, with Liz and my play and all of it. The therapist was younger than I wanted her to be and her clothes were more expensive than I expected. I briefly wondered if I should have been a therapist because then I might be sane and rich as opposed to broke and crazy. She asked me to talk about all of the reasons that I wanted to see a therapist and I mentioned that everything I cared about was falling apart in ways that seemed ruthless and uncontrollable. She asked me what kind of things, and I searched for the easiest answer as an example as something she might recognize instantly, and I landed on Liz. My relationship, I said, seemed to be over, although neither of us had ended it yet. The therapist asked me to talk about this relationship, and I immediately felt like I'd made the wrong choice in using Liz as an example. I also felt like I'd made the wrong choice in calling it a relationship. Liz was the thing I was doing instead of a variety of other things, and as far as Liz was concerned, I may have fulfilled the same function but it felt too complicated to explain all of that. So I started to talk and I talked for what I remember as a long time. I talked about meeting Liz on the first day of rehearsal and I talked about the feeling of being at the beginning of something like a relationship or a play, that wild rush of possibility breaking over you all the time, even when you're brushing your teeth, even when you're trying to sleep, how actually you just stop sleeping those first few weeks of rehearsal because this crazy energy is being generated by all the bodies in the room that are inhabiting the thing you dreamed up how it's like being possessed by ghosts, except you're the ghost, and everybody else feels suddenly so real. You've never been this invisible and this alive at the exact same time. It's a baffling, terrifying, addictive feeling. It's the best high in the world. The other thing about it is that it feels a lot like religion. I wasn't raised with any, but the people I know who believe in God derive a lot of comfort from the idea that they're being held by something larger than themselves. When I'm in a theater, I feel held. I feel simultaneously very safe and like something very dangerous is about to happen. And that dangerous thing is the wall of my chest peeling back slowly, so slowly in time with the curtain rising. And if the play is my play, then everybody present can gather close and peer at my naked heart. And I won't even try to guard myself because I am being held by the architecture of the theater, by every pair of arms in every seat. And I will sit still for a time between 75 and 120 minutes. And I will be naked and I will be invisible and I will be entirely seen. And all the parts of me that are ugly and lonely and horrible and sad will be the parts of me that other people hold close to themselves and find a secret resonance with and about which they say to themselves, I know that thing too. When I'm all alone, that's how I feel too. And even if nobody says those words out loud right then, we will be feeling the same feeling so strongly that we will forget that we aren't of one body, one mind, one tenuous heart. And if it isn't my play, then I will still be part of that collective witnessing organism, still be a single cell, within a warm and gazing animal. It's the sort of feeling that becomes a constant longing. It's the sort of longing upon which you build an entire life. After a while, the therapist broke in. She said, Cass, Cass. I remember she was looking at me oddly. I said, what is it? She said, you haven't been talking about your girlfriend at all, Cass. Are you aware of that? I said, what are you talking about? Of course, I've been talking about my girlfriend. And the therapist said, no, you've been talking about the theater. She said, I would say you've been talking about your career, except none of this is about anything I would normally term a career. You don't seem to have any separation between yourself and your job, your employment, so to speak. There's no professional distance. You haven't even mentioned the word money. 
She said, honestly, I would never usually put it like this, but I'll just say it. You're in a dysfunctional relationship with the theater. Your girlfriend, Liz, is beside the point. I said, I've been getting around to telling you about Liz. I just haven't gotten there yet. And the therapist said, well, this is the first time in 60 minutes that you've mentioned her name, Cass. So I think that should tell you something because it certainly tells me quite a bit. I love that. I love that part. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I love is, is that I feel like that could only have been written by somebody who actually really does love the theater and who has spent a lot of time in the theater. Um, and there's so much in this book that, that it feels like it comes from a scene, uh, like, and by that, I mean like a sort of a social scene around the theater. Um, so I'm curious for you, what was it, what was it like to write about a scene where I feel like, especially a scene where people are, are used to sort of, you know, playing roles or seeing themselves in it. How did, how did you write about people who, who you probably knew and who were in a kind of world with you? I mean, I hadn't planned to. The honest answer is I had moved out to LA to write um, on a TV show on Tales of the City. And, um, and I started writing this novel at the same time. Um, or I started writing a novel. I was trying to write a different novel, the novel that I told our mutual editor that I was writing. <laughs> you do it every time I sat down. Um, I just ended up writing about the theater and about a playwright and about somebody who was sort of being devoured by this longing for the theater because that that was what I was feeling. Um, I felt both sort of geographically and also emotionally very far from the theater at that point. And then when it became clear to me that I was writing a novel about the theater, I panicked a little bit because I thought like, this is my community, this is my family, these are my people, they're gonna read this. And are people gonna see themselves in it in ways I didn't intend? Like these characters are truly fictional, but nobody really believes you when you say that. So like what, you know what I mean? Like what am I setting myself up yeah. for? Um, and I, you know what I also, nobody really banked on the pandemic in so many ways, but what I also didn't bank on was that um, the book would enter the world at a point where theater has been, or theaters, we understand it, has been shut down for a year. The buildings have been closed. You can't gather. There's no live performance. Um, and, and that's also a really interesting moment for people to be reading and responding to a book about the theater. Um, and I think a lot of my, anxiety about um, whether how people would imagine themselves into it or feel seen or feel portrayed. I've been surprised because people have been calling and texting, not only being like, oh, you know, are these characters this set of people who I think that they are, but also calling and self-identifying and being like, oh, I'm definitely <laughs> Marilyn or like, oh, I'm 100% Tara Jean Slater. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was, that for me was sort of one of the pleasures was to get to feel like I was like getting a little bit of gossip. Like, I don't even know theater, but I was like, I think I know who Tara Jean Slater is. Or like, and then I saw the interview with Dana and she was like, I'm Liz and things like that. And and that there's something about this book that, that makes me, that gives me that feeling like um, that there are other books in the past that have done this something like the group by Mary McCarthy where you read it and you're like, which one am which one am I in this? And that there was, even though I'm not part of the scene, I kind of I felt I felt that sort of pleasure, like I was being let in on a secret. Yeah. Um 
it was it was really fun but like in a fun gossipy way (laughs) (laughs) like um and uh so then so then do you think people were so excited to sort of see themselves in a role because they're missing the opportunity to like have a role themselves it's like well i haven't gotten to be a role in a theater for a year so i guess i'm a role in uh when we play ourselves (laughs) i don't know i mean i think I think we're all really missing theater and we're missing both sort of the practice of it and the the labor of it, but also the feeling, like the gathering feeling of it, you know, like it is, I mean, any sort of arts community can be really tight and really insular in ways, both good and bad. Um, and I think theater, because it's such a collaborative craft, we're all so used to being around each other, you know? And, and so I think some yeah. of that also is like, feeding the the desire to be like, oh, I'm Liz, you know, where as I, my fear had been that somebody would be like, why did you write this about me? <laughs> yeah. um, another, so there's the theater part and then she moves to LA and there's, and then it's like a different art form then it becomes movies. Um, and you've, you know, you've actually, you've written for television and things. Um, but I was interested also in in the fact that the, the, the the second part of it um, has a sort of resonance with Fight Club. You know, they're, they're for, I don't think I'm spoiling anything if I say that there's a, a Fight Club in the book, um, but it's a Fight Club that's um, mostly done by uh, teenage girls. Uh, and so when the Fight Club is sort of, it's the the head of the Fight Club is, is, a, is a director, um, and so one thing I was interested in was the way that actually this fight club that you have in your book is, I felt like there were resonances with the original fight club personally. And I'm curious what you think about this, where like in the original fight club, you have uh, Tyler Durden and the narrator, and they're like sort of two sides of the same sort of person. They're sort of like nemeses for each other, even, but they're like pulled together. And there's a way in which, in your book, there's the narrator who has very complicated feelings about success, and there's Caroline who's willing to do sort of anything for success, and they're they're sort of at, at odds with each other. Does that resonate to you? Do you think of them as sort of two sides of the same character or nemeses for each other? Yes. Um, oh, there's so much to say about the Fight Club of it all. I, for people who haven't yet read the book, uh, Wayne Cass moves to LA, as Tori was saying, her next door neighbor is this filmmaker who's making, and this is like basically first chapter and a half, so nothing's being ruined, but her, the filmmaker neighbor is making a sort of like a hybrid documentary film about this group of teenage girls who are engaged in a fight club and who are sort of, um, sort of the gimmick of the movie is that they're repurposing like this masculine classic as young women. Um, and then Cass becomes involved with them and a lot of things happen that I won't spoil, but, but that she and Carolyn, who is the director, are both um, people who are impacted by ideas of success and failure. Um, and, and eventually one of the questions in the movie is like, how far will you actually go for success? And so in, in terms of your question, Tori, I, I mean, I think I think that they are foils to each other for sure, because Cass is somebody who desperately wanted and almost had success in New York and then did something terrible and now is banished. And Carolyn, and so lives with this real guilt. And Carolyn, the filmmaker, even though she, you know, can be a bit manipulative, a bit exploitative in certain ways, um, we find out that things aren't quite what they seem. 
she is in some ways to me sort of an immensely honest character because she is unapologetic about wanting success and wanting fame and understanding sort of um, the economics of the arts world, what sells and what doesn't and what you have to become to become something that sells. Um, and her lack of apology around that and sort of lack of like questioning herself essentially um, make her Cass's foil because Cass is so sort of in this place of failure that she can't do anything but question herself initially. Um, I, I think there is, I mean, the other thing about the movie alongside the foil, I don't know that Chuck Palahniuk yeah. comment this, as a, as a young queer person, I watched that movie and I was like, this is so queer, you know, and yeah. in sort of yeah. possible ways. And I feel like some of that queerness is about desire, of course, desiring what you are not, projecting yourself onto another surface, um, desiring what you could be, you know, and I think that there are, even though Cass and Carolyn are not involved, there are also currents of um, looking at somebody else and thinking, how fabulous, like I wish that I could live inside that body and be that person, you know? Yeah, I mean, Caroline is sort of a Tyler Durden in, <laughs> in the, like she, she's this sort of like ideal of somebody who just will will crush anything that's in her way. And, and that the, what's interesting is that the book I feel like withholds judgment about that. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's unclear um, whether or not like, how you want to interpret what she's doing because there there are there are the some of the girls in there are very willing they're like yes we we want this we want to be stars and um and then there's other people who are like no this is inauthentic and i'm wondering about like what how do you feel about the question of like um kind of like authenticity of like, a lot of the questions are like sort of identity questions. Like do you, in order to be uh, a star, you need sort of an authentic story of who you are. And I wonder if you, if you could talk a little bit about that as it relates to both the Fight Club and the second thing that's happening, which is sort of Cass's second nemesis, Tara Jean Slater. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, I am really, without having any answers, I'm really interested in questions of sort of the Venn diagram, right, between authentic identity, the art that you need to make that is coming out of your self-expression, and then the ways in which, whether no matter what art form it is, the market identifies what it wants to buy. Um, right. There's a way in which, right now, female stories are suddenly sellable, which like, who knew? Do you know what I mean? Like, how do we <laughs> yeah. great? So on the one side, it's like, the positive is that people finally want to hear what women have to say in the stories that they're writing. The complicated side is that there is a particular narrative that has been um, held up as economically viable, which is like a woman's trauma. Like people are less interested in what a woman is thinking. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't really need mm -hmm. like historical political analysis from a woman. That's what we've meant for. But you know, we do want to know about the trauma. And I'm being like obviously a bit flippant and blanket about it all. But some of what the book is um, dealing with is like you mentioned Tara Jean Slater. She's a character who is 21. She's still an undergrad in Yale. She is Cass's nemesis because she is so young and yet she is scooping up the prizes, the awards, the accolades, like she keeps writing these plays, which are 
authentic expressions of her identity. I mean, they're about trauma and all of the different kinds of trauma she's been through, but the marketplace is enthralled with this particular portrayal of young um, female trauma and how trauma sort of intersects with sexuality. And so the, com the complexity is that she's making work that she needs to make because it's an exorcism in a way of what she's going through. That work is a commodity that people want to buy, you know, and, and, and there's a way in which her identity is being commodified. And then you have Carolyn who is saying, yes, identity is a commodity. Like, let's identify what we need to become so that we are viable, you know. And Cass is kind of like, she has, of course, this deep, deep envy of Tara Jean. She wants everything that Tara Jean has. Um, but she also doesn't, act, she's not a particularly um, like savvy character in terms of understanding the marketplace that Carolyn is playing in. And so she wants a thing without quite knowing what the cost will be. But she's also very artistically pure in some ways. Like, you know, like instead of a set sort of resilience story that that you know, I I'm like very familiar with the idea of like trans women telling resilience stories, and then you can sell it because if you tell the story like this is hard, and then I was resilient, and then blah, 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 then they're like here's your money, you know. Whereas if you tell a story that's like like very rarely when I hear um, trans women tell stories do people focus on the craft of the story like here's here's what's here's the art form that I'm, that we're using or here's the sort of thing and what's interesting to me is that when when there's some sort of things that caroline name checks but i really liked like the that Cass when people talked about um Cass's plays it was like some from some sort of school of absurdism that uh and like the in the review it was like a european but not in a you know, yeah. and i don't know and it was like it was like this is what Cass is trying to do is she's trying to create art and she's trying to be rewarded for just doing art and it's very hard it seems like nobody can see that they can only see like our is how can we commodify her you know and um well and then what's complicated is she becomes really interested in, interested in trying to commodify herself. Like when she falls in with Carolyn, she's like, oh, wait, like this could be my comeback story, you know? So how do I get the GLAAD award? Like, do I make a piece about coming out? Like what, you know what I mean? Like she's trying to be um, savvier than she is in a way. And there, there's something even about comeback stories, right? That like the way she goes to LA is, is, is supposed to be a comeback story. It's supposed to be, okay, the theater in of New York didn't like what I'm going to do, but I'm going to come back and I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to show them in, in, uh, in, in, on the screen, what I can do. And it, it, it's sort of set up to be, you know, what feels sort of like a Fitzgerald story where it's like, well, okay, Fitzgerald got kicked out of New York for whatever, but now is Hollywood tycoon. <laughs> and there's a way in which like, that keeps on not really being accessible to to cast and so i'm wondering what do you think about who gets to have a comeback story i'm so interested in the idea of a comeback story because something about it to me seems quintessentially american um yeah. the whole sort of it's a combination of like manifest destiny and pull yourself up by your bootstraps like it's this idea that like you just have to work harder 
but there's a glorious ending in sight for everybody. Like we're all so exceptional. We have this glorious ending. Um, and I think, I mean, culturally, I'm trying to think of a woman who got to come <laughs> after yeah. a real fall, you know? And uh, I, I've been really, I've been wondering if like, when I, when I thought about this book and I thought about comebacks, I've actually been wondering if Britney Spears is getting a comeback, is getting like the, the, the myth, the mythical comeback that nobody's getting, getting like the free bit Britney and everybody's like reassessing Britney and, and Monica Lewinsky and, and things like that. It's like, wow, are we actually in a place where like women can get comeback stories? But I, I think wonder that. I mean, I watched the Britney documentary, and we, you and I, should have a drink and go down yeah. that path. <laughs> but um, what interests me, I mean, Monica Lewinsky actually is maybe a good example of somebody who did not get a comeback, but she had yeah. to forge an entirely different, like a go forward, like she had to forge a different path. Um, you know, with her intelligence, her intellect, her yeah. desire, her like the message that that sort of she she came through the fire and she came out the other side with a real sense of like, I have something to say. I am equipped to say it and I'm gonna do that. But it's I'm a completely different life and a I don't know her, but my guess is it's a completely different life than any one that she imagined she would have. So I mean yeah. something that the book um, what I'm interested in exploring in the book are all of the ways, I mean, Cass is one of the characters who has this, there are a couple of others who think that they want a comeback or think that there's a way that they'll get one, but then actually you just have to to find a different life. There's no sort of um, getting to earn your way back to the place that you were before the fall from grace. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I again, I don't want to talk too much about the ending, but um, one thing that's interesting sort of for me is that um Cass is very interested in like the forms and like absurdism and i felt like there was there was you know she's there was a question of like are we going to do things Cass's way which is really about the art or are we going to do it caroline's way which is about the commodification and i was really interested in in the in the way that like as these characters are talking about form your book too is playing with form um, to give too much away, but there is a, a play within the book. How did you decide to do that? I mean, that's kind of a, like, that would, like, it happened. I was like, wow, that's a move. Like, you wrote a play inside of this book, like, and it was, it was delightful, but it was, uh, you know, it was a cool move. Thank you. I mean, I did it, and then I was like, literally, what am I doing? But, and, and while, I should say, I mean, it took me a minute to figure out what a novel was or how to write one. And I say this is like, I read fiction constantly. I'm constantly reading. So it wasn't like, I didn't know what a novel was, but I didn't until I, like when I started trying to write one, all of a sudden I was like, wait, but what makes it a novel? You know, like what, how do you do that? And so then in my mind, like eventually I thought, well, this is an extended monologue. I mean, it's first person, it's present, present tense. Um, Cass is talking to us and she's telling us what she needs us to know. Um, and she's telling herself what she needs to know. You know, there's a way in which I started to understand, of course it was still a novel but with chapter breaks and all that stuff, but I started to sort of understand it through a theatrical lens. And so when the novel got to the section that becomes a play, I think I hadn't pre-planned it. It just sort of, I found myself there, but I, in some ways I think I was primed for that breaking of form um, because 
the way that I was understanding a prose form was was through a theatrical lens, you know. That's so interesting. And it feels that way. It has that sense of like being spoken to and like this the like the the power of the voice. Um and another way that it's interesting in which it's broken up is that it, it's broken up by place, you know, there's New York and then there's LA and then there's New Hampshire. Um, can you tell me about what it was like? I'm kind of obsessed with LA novels as somebody who's never really been to LA. Um, and I assume, you know, you're also kind of a more New Yorker than me. Um, I'm, I'm curious, what was it like, you know, to, to, to be a New Yorker writing an LA novel when you have, you know, Eve Babbitts and Joan Didion, like all these people, you know, being like, this is, this is, you you know, goodbye to all that in New York and you go to LA and you write your LA novel. Did you feel that? I am so glad that I started writing the novel in a play, like, eventually I felt that. And I think if I think uh -huh. I had felt that at the beginning, I would have stopped. But So I'm glad I did. When I first started writing it, what was happening was my experience of being in LA was so fresh and so new. Like I had, I'd been in and out for some, you know, pitch meetings and generals and that kind of thing, but I'd never really been there. And so I started writing, as I mentioned, the novel, like the week that I had gotten off the plane at LAX, I a place in Silver Lake and I was going to the TV offices like in Hollywood and all of that geography was so new and the city was really new. Like there, I sound so naive, but there were plants that I had never seen before. I didn't know what they were. I mean, I felt like I was in Jurassic Park. Like there were things that I would just be walking down the sidewalk and I would think, what the hell is that? And it would be like spiky and weird and big. And, you know, so it just, I felt like I was on an alien planet. And so when I was writing the LA sections, um, I mean, Cass feels like she's on an alien planet, you know, and she is so disoriented for slightly different reasons than the reasons that I was disoriented, but the, the disorientation is part of the, um, the encounter with LA. And, and so that, because I was sort of living in a place of that experience, it was easy to access. And then about three months in, um, I bought, I had been reading Joan Didion on and off and I bought a stack of Eve Babbitts. And I remember lying on my Airbnb couch, like reading Eve Babbitts and being like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't read this three months ago. Like this <laughs> essential LA book and I am not like. But it has the LA glamour, like, you know, that both because I feel like the LA glamour is also like being constantly confused by what you're seeing and also being like, uh, in the backyard, there is the movie director personality who's going to change your life, like all of that, like it, the glamour of the Eve Babbitts is in your book. And like the sort of encounters with strange people is in your book, like it felt, it felt like it had the LA glamour to me personally um, um i want to ask um a question that i got asked by roxanne gay um when i when she interviewed me and it, it's maybe my favorite question that i've ever been asked in an interview and it's also it's hard to ask but um the question is this what do you like best about your writing Ooh. oh god um, I 
This is exactly my reaction when I got asked it too. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean, I will answer, and then actually, I very much want to know what you said. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay, I'll say. Um, I think, I mean, as somebody who comes out of the theater, I find it very easy to hear, to listen to voices of people talking and to listen for specific rhythms and textures, the ways that people deploy words and dialogue. So I think that dialogue is a tool um, that I really rely on and also that helps me understand the story that I'm telling. Like when I hear those voices clearly, then I know the direction I'm moving in. So that, yeah. might, be, that might be the answer. But what did you That's say? I said uh, I was more egotistical. <laughs> I said that I like I like how much I can pack into a paragraph. I said that I, I like that I can go from heartbreaking to to funny in a paragraph. But um, no, I was you I was you know give I will say I, I someone you know, give to compliment myself. You know. Um, but um, I think I think that's the time that we have for my section of it. I know that there's a lot of people in the in the in the audience that um, have questions. So um, maybe we can open it up for some audience questions. Oh, sure. I just suddenly clicked this thing and the chat popped up. I hadn't even known it was a it was there. Oh, hello, everybody who's. <laughs> Um, we don't have any questions yet, so if the audience has questions, now is your time to ask uh, them. You can put them in the chat or um, in the ask a question feature. Yeah, but well, Marie, do you want to, do you have more questions? Or Yeah, I have more questions. I just didn't want to, I didn't know, uh, I didn't know, I didn't want to like take up other people's No, time. yeah, I was, I was just... Um, well, I'm one thing I didn't ask about because it's sort of um, so people, if you have questions, like definitely start asking them. But otherwise, I'm happy to keep talking. Um, one thing that that um, you know was interesting to me uh, is the way that um, you know, for me as somebody like I'm trans and I'm constantly I'm constantly um, sort of asked about that in the ways that I sell my book. And, and I'm curious about in this book that is about selling your identity, whether or not you as a queer writer, like how did it feel to you to like, are you asked to do that as a queer writer at, at, because this book comments on that? Or did you feel like people have not, because this book is about selling the identity, you haven't had to as much. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah. Um I will say in terms of the book and in ways that I think I found a little surprising, I haven't at all had that experience, um, but I've definitely had it in the past. And, and some of what I find really interesting, um, I mean, even just in the TV and film world are the projects, sometimes, not always, the projects that you're bought are brought that people bring to you are very much a reflection of the ways in which your identity would be valuable to that project. Um, and I remember having, this was a long time ago, but I remember having a conversation with somebody who brought me a series of things. Uh, and he was like, you know, 
in this like post Me Too moment, we have these stories about Me Too and we're really excited to find like a young queer female writer to write about Me Too. And he had this whole thing. And I was like, what are the projects that you're bringing to your like straight cis male writers? Like, I'd love, tell me about those. Like, I would really like to hear, you know, what are the things you need to write her on? And, and he, I mean, he was so taken aback, not, you know, not hostile, but, but taken aback. And, and I think like, it's tricky because on the one hand, there are definitely themes that intersect with my identity that I care about and that I want to write about. Um, I do, I write a lot of queer characters. I care about queer landscapes. Um, but also there's a lot of stuff I care about. Like I'm obsessed with Hemingway. Like I would really love, do you know what I mean? For things that aren't, that don't necessarily Venn diagram into my lived identity to also be, um, be material that's open for me as a writer. So, yeah, I don't know if that totally answers yeah. your question. No, it does. It does because, you know, if you like Cass, I was thinking about it, you know, that and and what what happened to Cass seemed in some ways a question of expectations. Like she was given this award and they were given, she was given this award as like a young <clears throat> queer feminist writer. And, and then, when she wrote a play that didn't accord to the ideas of being a young queer feminist writer or playwright, um, then the, she was, people didn't like the play. They rejected the play because their own expectations of what a young feminist queer writer should write, <clears throat> she didn't deliver on them. And I feel that sometimes that way that like, I'm like, what if I wrote a novel that wasn't a trans novel? Like, I, you know, not just like sort of the powers that be might reject it, but like, my fans might reject it, you know, because they're like, this is your lane, you stay in your lane. And excuse me, <coughs> in some ways it seemed like that was actually the trap that the cast the cast fell into. Yeah, I think that there can be a lot of expectation, um, a lot of expectation around around what you're supposed to write, you know, and that's supposed to can can sort of be predicated on any number of things, but at least right now, there is a real sense of like, write about your direct identity, your, the most obvious facets of your direct identity in certain ways. Um, I don't know, I think it's complicated. Uh, yeah. But I also think, I, I'm still like sort of trying to find answers for myself as an artist, but, but what I'm learning in a way is that there is a lot of work that is not going to be the right work for me. And even if mm. I share a facet of the identity that that work is about or the character who is in it, like that doesn't mean that I'm the right writer for it. That so much has to be about point of view on the world and tone and structure and opportunities to subvert tone and structure. Like there really has to be something um, more than just the most obvious connections for for me to find that I can, that there's space for me in it, you know? What do you want to do with Hemingway? Oh, I mean, I have been, I mean, so much, but I have been, and yes, I know he's a hugely problematic, like, believe I, me. I love, I, I, I find him absolutely fascinating. And like, I mean, I was just thinking about him the other day. So that's why I'm curious, like, what, what, what you would like, what you would do with Hemingway. I've been reading all of his letters over the past year. I've been reading his letters um, and his books. And there's just, 
I mean, I won't go too far down this path because I, I no, no, but, I don't but, want to stick to your book too, but I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. Something really interesting there about how he, I mean, talk about we play ourselves. He invents a persona for himself and then he feels like he has to stick to it. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of expectation around the kind of masculinity that he performs. Um, he stages, the, like he gets in the bull ring because there's photographers there and he like lets them take pictures, which is not to say that he didn't want to tussle the bulls anyway, but there's a way in which he like creates a thing and then constantly has to keep performing it. And eventually in his later life, he is um, so depressed and so sort of um, unstable and unwell. And And I'm, I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that, but I'm interested in what happens when you create an, a, a persona, a character that you, how can you keep living up to it? And it doesn't give you much space for change. You know what I mean? Like, I think I mean, that, that's, that yeah. sounds exactly like your book though. Like that's, <laughs> this is exactly what's in the book that the, <laughs> that these characters, you know, they have to be types and they have to be like, you know, Tarjan Slater has to be, this is my trauma and she has to relive it over and over or each of the girls in the fight club. It's like, well, you're, you're this, you're this archetype. And so you have to like keep fighting, you have to keep being it, being it, being it. And any way you deviate from it is unpalatable or, or, or traps you, you know? So it's Hemingway's in your book actually, right? <laughs> Who knew? Yeah. <clears throat> um, okay. But people were just waiting to ask their questions until the very end. Um, but it's time. Uh, our first question comes from Ava. Uh, like many of your previous characters, Cass is incredibly obsessive. Do you consider yourself to be obsessive? If so, does it aid you in making your work? Yeah, I am obsessive. I think that's true. I either... I don't care about something at all. Like I don't have an opinion. I don't want to discuss where we should go to dinner. Like just tell me where we're going to dinner. I don't want to weigh in or I like really care. Um, and then I, you know, I fall down. I mean, Hemingway, I fall down these rabbit holes where I'm just, I want to know everything there is to know about a particular thing. Um, even if there's no end goal in mind, you know, I think, and does it aid me? I mean, yes. When I'm really interested in something, I have an unwavering focus in ways good and bad. Like I, I can easily work all night, but, um, but then I can also sort of lose track of <laughs> sanity, health and sunlight. So, you know, I'm not sure. Um, thank you. Uh, this question from James, how do you find your way into the structure of a novel? Did you have a roadmap at the start of your writing journey or did you have to stumble around in the dark for a little while? I stumbled around a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, I have, I mean, I had to write a whole chunk of pages to understand what I was interested in, what I was doing. And then once I started to really understand where I was going, I had to throw a lot of that out and sort of, you know, iteratively move backward and forward and backward and forward. Um, I tend to be really visual. So a lot of the roadmap becomes like post-it notes and colored pens and stuff that's just sort of like the next few steps ahead so that I can see where I'm pointed. Um, uh, Tori, do you outline? I really wanted to ask you this. I don't. I, um, I, I sometimes use like 
when I'm lost, I'll use Scrivener to sort of like chart out what I've already done and then use that as a sort of trajectory for where I might be going. Like if I can sort of see what I like visually what I've done, then I can sort of see where like the arc of the rocket is going or where it might land. But that's usually about a third or a halfway into something that I, before I actually start to do it. Um, I'm curious, how does how does this for you you know you've done you've worked in in so many different different mediums you've done tv you've done short stories you've done uh, obviously plays and novels what do you think you're going to do next and like what do you what do you miss doing well i'm going to write a play next <laughs> So I have an outstanding commission at a theater. And if anyone from that theater is watching this, I'm working on um, And I miss theater so badly. And I'm, I'm struggling with understanding how to write a play in a moment where I haven't been in a theater in over a year at this, or just about a year, um, to sort of summon or conjure what feels theatrical. Um, and what I, you know, coming out of this year, like, why go, like, it feels to me like there has to be a reason that something is theater and not yeah. a, or a screenplay or a novel. You know what I mean? So I'm in working on this new play. That's some of what I am also sort of trying to navigate my way around. So when you hear, when you like sort of feel a story growing in you, do you know if it's going to be, do you know what form it's going to take? Are you like, this is a novel growing in me? This is a, this is a, a short story or is it sort of like you, you sit down to write a play and then you make the story like or or does the story sort of choose the choose the medium the story often chooses the medium like often beginning to understand the questions that i'm asking and the form in which i'm asking them those things sort of make it clear what form it is but every once in a while there's something that i really i don't know what form it is and then often i really like i'll i'll sort of sit down and think well if this was a play what, what kind of an invitation to the audience would it be? If this was a TV show, how does it make use of a durational eight to 10 episode arc? Like, does it need that amount of time? If it mm -hmm. was a movie, like how how does the story rely on, on visual storytelling in a way that it might not rely on sort of dialogue and text? Like there's a way in which sometimes when I really don't know, I have to think about what what am I trying to do and and, and reimagine it in a few different ways and see which sparks sort of. So you'll actually, will you actually start it the same story in different, in like as a play, as a short story, as a, you know, in, in different things, or is it more like in your head? Like, it's, do you have an, I would love to see one where it's like both or something like that and see the differences. I, well, I'll generally like, it's not, I wouldn't even call it outlining. It's more like diagramming or drawing. Like I tend to be pretty visual about these things. So I'll sit, I'll draw it out in different forms and think like, how does it move if it's a play? How does it move if it's some, you know, an iter like a multi-episodic um, multi structure. But every once in a while, like I've had some things that I started writing and I felt like a real compulsion toward the questions at the heart of it, but the right, but it wasn't working. And so then I thought, okay, this is, well, this isn't a story. Like, is it a play? You know what I mean? Like where I had to mm -hmm. throw stuff out and start again. Um, but I don't tend to try to write it in multiple forms. I tend to try to to figure out which form it is and then commit to yeah. that. Sometimes I'm wrong. 
That makes sense. Also a good way to save not doing a whole lot of work that doesn't ever see the light of day. Yeah. I love the um, idea of the opening being um, an invitation to the audience and what the best invitation might be um, for different formats. That was really nice. Um, uh, another audience question, what are your some of your favorite plays? Ooh, I if I had seven hours, I still couldn't finish telling you what to look up. But um, some of my favorite plays are Basil Cremendal's Orange Julius, which is a beautiful, beautiful play. Um, a play that I deeply wish I wrote, um, but I didn't. <laughs> um, Brandon Jacob Jenkins and Octoroon, Young Jean Lee's play Lear, um, The Treasurer by Max Posner. Like these plays, Sarah Rules Eurydice, these plays have transformed my sense of what is possible in a theater. Um, Sarah Kane, her body of work, Carol Churchill, her body of work. Like I I came to theater sort of through Sarah Kane and Carol Churchill. Um, yeah, read all of those. They're so amazing. Even on the page, they're, they're like literary texts um, as well as blueprints for performance, but, but they are like literary texts. Do you have do you have books that you also feel like you're in conversation with, or is it or is it are you writing novels that are in conversations with the with the ideas of those plays? No, there's definitely. There, I mean, I tend to, or at least prior to this year, I read way more fiction than I did plays because I would like you know go see plays. Um, but when I had like time to read, it was always fiction. Um, I don't know that this book is in conversation with them, but I've been hugely influenced by Maggie Nelson's body of work, um, Jenny Offal, Anne Carson, um, a lot of people who, Sarah Manguso, a lot of people who, yeah, play with form, play with and break form, Sheila Hetty. Um, yeah. Like they've taught me a lot about what a novel can be. And then on the flip side, and after the Hemingway obsession, this will surprise nobody, but like Richard Yates, that in, I read his yeah. entire canon and then I went back to the beginning and started rereading it. I thought you can't, and each novel, there are certain novels by Richard Yates that are flawless. I will, I will say this and I will stand by it. But, but most of the novels, there is a deep sort of literary flaw in them and yet it doesn't matter. I will get off my soap. I'm a former comparative literature major, so I could talk about books all night, but. <laughs> well, I mean, it seems that it's interesting to me that, that, that you've picked a lot of women who, who are doing uh, a certain type of form and, and have like a real awareness of gender. And then there's the two guys who are also doing gender, but seemingly totally unaware of the fact that they're doing gender. Yes. Well, I would say Hemingway's doing gender and Richard Yates is just doing like American misery, like American uh. entrapment and like the hope of transformation that will never come. And something about that, I think, really speaks to my soul. <laughs> I love that. Um, um, oh, we have a question no. from Elizabeth. Um, you started writing the novel while, while working on Tales of the City. How did working in different contexts, TV versus fiction writing, affect your process? And I'll add playwriting in there too. Um, yeah, how do you switch brains? I think that they really feed each other. Um, you know, in part, so novel writing is so solitary, obviously. Uh, 
and TV writing is so collaborative. You have like a group of writers in a room and your job um, is to serve the vision of the showrunner, but also to sort of put your brains together and amalgamate your voices so that there is a singular voice in the show on the page, even though you're all writing different episodes. Um, and I think doing both at the same time made me really appreciate them in ways that if I was just doing one or the other, I, I might have, I don't know, I might not have, but that like when I got so lonely and so alone with the book, I knew that I could go into a room full of writers and we would finish each other's sentences and work off each other's thoughts. And then, you know, when you've spent like a week trying to break an episode and you're just at an impasse and you can't figure it out and it's like herding cats, then I like knew I could go back to the book and just be fully alone um, and, and like have a singular focus. So I don't know. I feel like in general, I, I think that working in multiple forms only strengthens writers. Um, yeah, I'm not much of a purist anymore, although I think I used to be. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we have another question from Cindy um, that you can both answer if you want to, but uh, what inspires you to write? Tori, you go first. <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, probably oftentimes frustration like you know like i have i have something that is troubling me or or something that i'm frustrated about usually like not with other people but oftentimes in myself like some experience that i can't reconcile or that i can't make sense of um and a lot of times what i'm trying to do is is um work that out oftentimes by by creating fiction that is a test case for it. So in my own writing, um, like the most recent book or my most my only book, my most recent book my, <laughs> is what I was trying to do, my only novel, I should say. I was trying to create sort of a test case for how I might make an experimental family because I, I was in my 30s and I was um, having a hard time figuring out how to find meaning in the kind of relationships that were available for me. And so I created these three characters to sort of work out a lot of the questions that were troubling me. And, um, you know, usually I've also written two novellas. Um, and in each, each case, it was something that bothered me that usually by the end of it, I had sat with it for an entire year or in the case of a novel, three or four years. And by the end of it, I, I sort of found an answer that wasn't like, oh, here's how to solve my life, but I'd spent enough time with it that there was a there was a kind of relief at the end of it. I love that answer so much. And that really resonates with me because I feel very similarly, I'll bet you put it so well, that there is, I can't write if there isn't a question that I'm trying to actively figure out in my own life. Um, something that I don't understand about how to, how to be or how to navigate or is something even possible? Like generally there has to be a thing that I'm actively trying to unravel um, in order to write. Like it, it isn't ever just that there's a story I want to tell. It's like there's something I'm trying to interrogate for myself. Um, in there's a, uh, the last play that I did before the world shut down um, was called Witch. I did it out at the Geffen in LA. I did it a few places, Writers Theater in Chicago and then the Geffen in LA. And, um, 
for me, the project of that play was asking sort of, is there hope? Is there, can you transform the systems that exist or is the only thing to do to sort of raise it to the ground and start again? And, and if you start again, well, the same minds that knew what came before are starting again. So how can you ever actually escape yourself? Or is there a way to really institute change? And I, was, I didn't have an answer and I was actually in a real despair, which is what the play came out of. Um, and then the play opened and I, all these people were talking to me being like, oh, I, you know, I actually felt a lot of hope in that play. I, I thought like, oh, great. Like maybe there's hope. And then the pandemic. So, yeah. <laughs> so working out these questions of these forms just for me now just opens more questions. Is it sometimes does it feel like for me, sometimes it's like the question doesn't isn't answered by work, but it can live in the work instead of in my heart, you know, yes. Yes. like. Um, my second novella was about sort of conflict between trans women, which was, uh, a, you know, it was a thing in my community. And I wrote this book that was sort of about it. And suddenly that problem for me lived in the book and I could sort of reference the book when I wanted, when I, when people asked me about it. Um, did that happen for you where, where it's sort of like, it's still like the question of hope for you it still troubles you, but it lives in your play instead of like with you every day? Yeah, well, the thing, I was being a little flippant before, but the thing is there was actually a stretch of time between opening the play. At that point I had been through several rewrite processes. I had seen it, it had been at two theaters. When it opened at the second theater, there was this period of time in which I just felt um, like a weight lifting off me like I had really been struggling with this question of like is change even possible can we actually affect any kind of meaningful change without destruction and um yeah I had some really great months like up until yeah. <laughs> up until like March of 2020 you know um so yeah I think the questions can really live in the work for a time and and with certain questions they can stay in the work you know yeah um, I think we have time for one more question um, from Kat, who's wondering about the cover, which was another great excuse to show off the beautiful cover art. Um, yeah. Well, can we, I say it? Yeah, you say it, you say it. Well, we both have, we both, this is the, the artist for this is the same artist for both of our books. Her name's Rachel Ake and she's amazing. She's amazing. Um, yeah, why don't, you, why don't you talk about your book first and then I, I can sort of say what I what I think about her. Well, actually wait, the one thing I'm gonna do while we're talking about Rachel is this is, this was my first book and she did this cover as well. So this is basically like a snapshot of Rachel's. Wait, hold up your book too, Tori. This is like Rachel's work across the board she's so um smart and thoughtful and like she's so you know she can access so many different kinds of sort of visual language um, so one sorry i cut you off but please continue no no you go um so there's a little delay so i didn't mean to be rude um there's one thing i really like about her that you can't really tell is that what she's so good at as a cover designer is that she sort of sources um, images rather than just creating them. So if you look in the back of this book, there's a list here of where all of the images on the front came from. 
And then actually this is a bunch of images that are collaged together, including for instance, just the lemon. The lemon is from Shutterstock. And that's so like, she kind of, she didn't just take a photo. She created like a collage of this photo where like the lemon was added. And similarly with mine, this cover, it, this pattern of these women's faces all moving together was actually from a European, Eastern European fabric designer that she found the fabric and turn the fabric into a cover. And so one thing I think that is like so amazing about her as a cover artist is, is not just that I feel like she's a sort of a fashion designer where she doesn't just create these covers. She knows the sources to find the images to make these incredible covers. Um, and I, I mean, I, I want her to do everything I ever write. Yeah, this is like basically the Rachel fan club. There are many other members they are just not on the screen right now. But yeah. yep, I asked for her specifically for We Play Ourselves because I was like, she is she is the one. <laughs> They're so beautiful. Inside and out, the books. Um, yeah. Do you have any final thoughts or questions before we say goodnight? I know it's getting kind of late in New York. Um. <laughs> Just that I, Tori, I so appreciate you joining me tonight and thank you so much for doing this. Thank you to Skylight for hosting us. Um, to, we were talking about this before the cameras turned on, but I've spent a lot of time sitting in Skylight, sitting on the benches by the poetry section, walking around the tree, just like I've spent days and days and days in Skylight. So it is really amazing to be able to be in conversation with a writer that I'm kind of obsessed with at a store that I love so much. <laughs> Um, yeah, thank you, Jen, and thank you, Tori, so much for being here um, here on the computer. And then one day we will all be back in the store. Um, yeah, I can't thank you enough. This was so wonderful. And thank you to everyone for being here. Um, we can't see you, but, but we know you're there. Um, yeah, so read the book. We play ourselves. It's so great. Yeah. <laughs> thank you everyone for coming. And of course, congratulations on this launch. It is, it's just, it's just a beautiful work and I can't wait to see and read all of, all of the books, all the books that are going to come after. Thank you so much. And congrats on Detransition Baby also. So cool. Congrats thank to you. you. <laughs> All right. Good night. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.